HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome baker and author Zoe Francois. In this episode, we'll talk to Zoe about cake. Her new book, Zoe Bakes Cakes. And we'll hear Zoe's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was definitely into baking. She didn't start her cooking journey there, but mastering bread making and French pastry were skills that consumed her right through to her series, Baking with Julia. The width is important, as the books were written by the much-adored Dory Greenspan, and the TV series featured top bakers showing Julia their chops, not what Julia was baking. So, if you're looking for Julia's deep dive into bread and cake, you want Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2. Julia also famously said, I think every woman should have a blowtorch. 
regular listeners may note, I already referenced this quote earlier in the season, but it's equally relevant to this episode. In episode 124, with Chef Amanda Cohen, we talked about its political meaning, a feminist statement towards a male-dominated profession. However, today, we're focusing on the literal meaning. Julia understood baking requires three key things, technical know-how, precision, and a whole lot of practice. It also requires the right tools for the job, hence the blowtorch. As she and Dory point out in Baking with Julia, you really can't make a proper creme brulee or scorched meringue without one. Someone who may be a bigger fan of the blowtorch than even Julia is pastry chef and cake maker Zoe Francois. Raised in a self-sufficient commune in Vermont, she started off decorating ice cream cakes for Ben and & Jerry's and ran her own cookie business while still in college. Later, Zoe trained as a pastry chef at the Culinary Institute of America before leaving for a job with Andrew Zimmern in Minneapolis. She then worked as an executive pastry chef at several restaurants in the Twin Cities. In addition to her new solo debut cookbook, Zoe Bakes Cakes, Everything You Need to Know to Bake Your Favorite Layers, Bunts, Loaves, and More, she's the co-author with Jeff Hertzberg of the best-selling Artisan Bread in 5 Minutes a Day series. She's also host of Zoe Bakes on Discovery's new Magnolia Network, where you'll soon be able to find her alongside the French chef. As Julia would appreciate, Zoe is at heart a teacher and a writer. She's taught baking across the country, and her work has been featured in leading publications from the New York Times to Food 52 and Cherry Bomb. She offers classes online and via her Instagram and YouTube channels. As a well-known influencer, she's won awards for her Zoe Bakes Instagram account, which reaches more than 300 followers. We hope all of them are listening. She joins us today to talk about her passion for cake and her new book. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe. Thank you. It's such a joy to be here. So I thought we'd start kind of at the beginning and not so much like your credentials like I just gave, but what was it that drew you to baking and kind of do you think instilled this passion for the art and the craft of it? Well, um, I would say originally what drew me to baking was curiosity. It was you know, I like you said, I grew up on a commune and we had enough food in our pantry to feed the masses. And so I was always surrounded by lots of food, lots of, you know, people prepping and cooking. I mean, it was like an all day, every day event to cook for that many people. We were also growing all of our food. Um, and so, you know, food was just part of the background of my life. And it was probably when I was like seven or eight, when I realized that you could take these raw ingredients pulled out of the pantry, mix them together, put them in the oven, and they emerge something else. And it fascinated me. I mean, just to have these really basic, basic um, ingredients, flour, uh, no sugar at the time, but flour, <laughs> eggs, honey, 
um, mix that together into what looked like probably slop at the time, put it into a pan and out comes um, what we used to call a puffy pancake or a, a, um, a Dutch baby. Um, and, you know, it was just magic to me. I loved it. Um, and I think it was, you know, and it was sweet. So it was totally satisfying. Um, yeah. So I think that like that early is when it really struck me as something that fascinated me. Well, I love that. It's like kind of you were drawn to the alchemy of it. Yeah. Yeah. Even as a kid, it really was more than because even before that, even before I made something that I could actually eat, it was just the putting it all together. And I would say even today, the process of baking is equally as fascinating and satisfying to me as the bonus of pulling something delicious out of the oven. It's really every single step of the process brings me joy. I love it. Well, and I've always thought it's so amazing to think about how did people discover that you could take wheat <laughs> from a field that looks nothing like bread and yeah. doesn't even look like a kind of attractive plant, Look, and then decided that if you crushed it up, you could get yeah. this powder that you can turn in with water, sugar, a little fat, right, into these amazing and endlessly diverse creations. So I, I share your like wonder yeah. with no, that. I am I am right there with you. It's absolutely fascinating how people figured out, you know, to process sugar, to process the wheat, every single element of what goes into what we eat was a discovery, you know, and then to discover how to put them all together and then to add fire to it. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and that you can do like 10,000 things with eggs. They can be an ingredient yes. to make like their own food, right? Like a meringue or they yes. do magical alchemy. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So I am so glad that within the 10 seconds of us talking to each other, meringue came up because it's <laughs> probably my favorite thing to play with in the kitchen. Which is so interesting because as a dish, it's not complex, it, right? <laughs> no. It requires skill to make it do what you want, but it's a pretty yeah. simple, right? How many ingredients are meringue? Two or yeah, three? basically you could do it with two. So yeah, it's two ingredients. and But it's endlessly fascinating, you know, the fact that this egg white can become this, like an egg white is not a sexy ingredient on its own, mm. straight out of the egg. But then you whip air into it and it becomes this like ethereal cloud. And, you know, you can then, uh, we are already talking about the blowtorch. <laughs> and then you can torch it and it's got this like toasty, beautiful flavor and look to it. I love it. I mean, I add it to anything I can. That's so fun. So I wanted to ask you about Instagram because I feel like mm. for you in particular, and it's not, and I think I'd love you to explain, it's not where you started, but it's where mm. a lot of people know you from. And it's definitely a very big part of your story, I think, in your journey from maybe one side to being particularly maybe a, a celebrated celebrity baker. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how how do you feel like Instagram has shaped your story or changed your career or maybe you have a different view that it hasn't. Oh, no, no, no. It definitely has. It certainly has. 
Um, you know, I was writing the cookbooks, um, the bread books, and um, that's been, that was fascinating and wonderful. Um, but pastry was always, always my love affair. It was always where I knew I would go. And the bread books um, sort of took on a life of their own. I've, I'm now on my eighth one. And it really took over my career. And then I made a conscious decision that I was going to turn things back uh, to pastry and and really dive back into that and make that the focus. So in order to get the book deal, I knew that I needed to grow my um, social media following. I had a, a terrific track record with my bread books. We've sold almost a million copies but I wasn't that known on my own for pastry. And so I really did need to prove myself to um, publishers for a pastry series. I went to Instagram. I was posting my pastries. People were liking them, but they weren't baking. Um, and as a recipe developer, as um, you know, someone who's creating recipes we want people to make them. It's like mm -hmm. one thing for them to like the picture. It's another thing for them to be baking. Somebody asked me a question and the easiest way for me to answer the question was to create a tutorial, um, a video. And mm -hmm. so I started making these videos and then everybody was baking my recipes. So I realized that Maybe my recipes came across as a little bit aspirational or intimidating. The second I shared the tips and tricks and things that I'd learned in culinary school and in restaurants, um, visually, people were doing it. And that's um, when also my Instagram following went from 18,000 to now I have 300, like you said, over 300,000 uh, followers. And it was because I was sharing the information. I was teaching on Instagram instead of just showing a, a picture. And it really distilled for me personally um, that I love to teach. I mean, mm. that's really what I have come to find out about myself. So <laughs> not only am I sharing, you know, what I know with Instagram, but Instagram taught me a lot about myself and what I enjoy and the pieces of this that um, bring me uh, a lot of gratification. So it was really when Instagram allowed you to do video and then offered yes. Instagram stories that it kind of took off because that became a sort of perfect format for you to, it, to interact. Yeah. It, it became, yeah, that was really the catalyst for me. And then... COVID. Uh, COVID, before COVID, it was just me and my hand. It was just my hands. I was demonstrating. Um, the camera was, you know, just top down. All you could see were my hands, music in the background. I wasn't part of the videos at all. COVID came and I really felt a need to connect in a different way with my community on Instagram because I wasn't connecting with humans at all. I was in my house really very, very strictly quarantining. 
And um, so I stepped in front of the camera and started doing Instagram lives and really had um, an interaction with my following in a very, very different way. I don't think they'd ever seen my face before. Um, and I loved it. It was incredible because there was like, you know, instant gratification of questions and this, you know, back and forth. And um, and that, again, changed sort of the nature of what I was doing. And, and um, I had been talking to the Magnolia Network, but I hadn't um, gotten the show yet. And then I think that it was a little bit part of you know, seeing me interact with, um, with the following and, and on camera that I got the show. So I really do think Instagram had a huge impact on my career. Who knew? I mean, you know, when I started this uh, career, when I was in culinary school, we didn't even have computers. So... <laughs> No, I know. Um, it's um, amazing how much it's accelerated the transformation. <laughs> and I think way back early in, in this show, I had Dory Greenspan on and I asked yeah. her something about how she maintains her social media following and was it kind of an imposition or anything like that? And she just said, no, the best thing about it is the feedback. And I did yes. so much for years in a vacuum and yes. the feedback makes all the difference to me in feeling like it's worthwhile. So it's interesting to hear you say. And it's instant. It's instant gratification. Like when you write a cookbook, you don't know necessarily who's baking it. They might, you know, I used to get letters like in the mail, in the mailbox letters from people expressing, you know, they are stories about baking from my books. Now I get them instantly. They bake a loaf of bread. I know like where they are in the process because they're posting pictures on Instagram. Um, you know, they're baking cakes. This for, you know, we just went through Father's Day and there were dozens of cakes from my book being posted for Father's Day. It's as a recipe creator, there's nothing better than watching your recipe be interpreted by the person with your cookbook. It's like, it's so incredible. Well, I wanted to ask you because, you know, Julia famously, you know, her phone rang off the hook during Thanksgiving mm -hmm. with questions yes. that she graciously <laughs> endeavored to answer. So did all of this pandemic baking phenomenon, were you then, did it change your feedback? Were you getting pinged constantly with emergency uh, cake fail help or or not so much? Oh, yes. You should see <laughs> my DMs. Um, yes. There were, and this is another, you know, brilliant thing about Instagram and just video content in general is that if I get the same question a few times, I know to create a video about it because they're not alone. I mean, there are just certain techniques that, you know, as a trained chef, I take for granted but then I see, you know, the same questions coming up. Um, then I know, create a video. Let's dispel all of this. It's going to take 10 seconds of watching me do it to have the aha moment. Um, yeah, so questions all the time. 
uh, on my website, on Instagram, Facebook. I mean, they'll put them all over the place. <laughs> um, so yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I have, um, you know, a, a crew of amazing people that help me find all the questions that are being put out there. And we try to answer everything because I think with baking, maybe even more than savory, the savory side of cooking, um, people are really, um, they can get intimidated quickly. And it's, mm. you know, the the launch is, feels a little bit harder. The second they see these things done and they, t you know, they feel that little bit of confidence to, to start, then they understand the joy of it. Um, but I really feel like it's important for me that I am available uh, for questions because I really want, and, and this started actually with the bread books. We knew bread was intimidating. I mean, mm. people for whatever reason were super intimidated by yeast. And Jeff and I were the first that I know of cookbook authors to answer questions 24 seven on our website. It's actually why we launched the website in 2007 was to be able be there, be available and answer questions. Um, and I do think it was part of the success of, of our books was just that, um, you know, we were, we put out a very easy recipe, but we were also available. Well, and that just speaks to the teaching and sharing quality, I think. But I want to stick on intimidation for a, se a second and just, um, I'm not sure I'm calling you out because I'm sure you've been asked or thought about this question, <laughs> but your stuff is beautiful. And that's one of the things on Instagram that is, is you know, is able to be conveyed and you can tweak your pictures and do them just so. And if you have a good camera, right? So your stuff <laughs> looks really perfect a lot of the time. So how do you reconcile this, you know, kind of, perfection visual style factor with the intimidating be fearless make mistakes just try it yeah well um uh, videos the videos of watching me do it um try yes it's so interesting i recently posted <laughs> a fail, a baking fail. And I have to say that um, I didn't quite understand how much my followers were waiting for me to fail <laughs> <laughs> until I posted this. And everybody was like, yes. It, it was like, like a giant ex internet exhale. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like, oh, this is so awesome. You know, and it's like, great, thanks. Um, but, it, but it was a fail and then a pivot. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it may fail. And then, you know, I mean, as a chef, we fail all the time. And in fact, some of my best recipes have come out of intending to do one thing and the recipe just going in the opposite direction, but still being delicious. And so I just call it something else. <laughs> and so it's like, it's like, Bing. No, well, that's I, very Julia, right? Never apologize. And one yeah. way not to apologize is if you were making a souffle and it comes out as a, a, yeah. a custard, you're like, well, I wasn't making a souffle. <laughs> it's a custard. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And I, I mean, I feel like that is the spirit of a chef. And it's it's really what I went to culinary school for was that 
I needed to know enough of the food science and how things like went together and played together so that I could have a better ratio of um, success and failure. <laughs> you know, it's like I was, you know, succeeding some of the time, but failing more of the time. And so I needed to have a slightly more understanding. I mean, in terms of recipe development and um I really think what I learned more than anything else in culinary school is not to panic. You know, it's just just about anything can be fixed or turned into something else. Um, it's it's very rare that I have to just like all out throw something away, um, you know, because as a pastry chef in a restaurant, that's not really okay. You know, it's like food cost, labor cost, everything. We can't be like throwing food away. And so you really have this necessity of figuring it out. And it's fun. I mean, I have to say, which is, you know, right back to where we started is I think part of what I'm trying to convey to people is it's not just the eating that's fun. It's the process. You know, it's the making of it. Some things, you know, some people want a one bowl recipe that's like you're you're able to make a, an entire cake out of one bowl, five ingredients. I think that's terrific. But I also love a croquembouche, which is many, many steps and actually many recipes all put together into this tower of, you know, gorgeous uh, profiteroles and, and pastry cream and caramel. And it's, you know, so both of those things are satisfying to me. Okay. We're going to come right back and we're going to dive <laughs> deeper into the challenge of croquembouche building and cake making <laughs> with uh, baking guru, Zoe Francois. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at gardencult.com. Welcome back. We're talking to author and cake boss Zoe Francois about her new Zoe Bakes Cakes cookbook. So Zoe, I wanted to also talk to you about 
how you put this book together, because actually, to me, one thing I noticed is it looks quite different than the kind of glossiness of your Instagram feed. So I was curious how you describe this book as a project maybe may different or was your intent to make it different than what you've done in the digital and online world? Oh, interesting. Well, I would say that it's actually a product of my Instagram. Um, just the things that I've learned. And um, uh, I would say the first thing that came to me about the book was the Cake Academy, which is this, um, in the beginning of the book, I have all of sort of the tips and secrets and diving a little bit into the food science. And it's there if you want it. You don't have to have it. All of the recipes stand alone. But it's the stuff that fascinates me about baking. It's the stuff that I realized from the questions I'm asked on Instagram where people maybe trip up in a recipe. And so I wanted to go into some detail, but I didn't want the book to feel super heavy. So I put it all into one place so that people could refer back to it. That was the most exciting part for me. The recipes are, the recipes, you know, I love them. And, you know, I worked really hard and on, on developing them and, I can't wait for people to make them, but I also want people to use the Cake Academy on, you know, their grandmother's recipe where she used to make it for them and it always turned out and they tried it and it's not working. And so I really wanted this to be um, some a reference point for people for any recipe, not just mine. Um and I, I'm a very visual learner. And so I wanted the book to be all about, you know, um, photos to show the steps. It's kind of like trying to recreate what I've done on Instagram with the photos and the videos. You can't do that necessarily in a book. So I tried to get as many photos and sort of create stories out of those photos. Um, the other thing about the book is I started um, with very simple recipes and I gradually, gradually add more technique. And so by the end of the book, actually the very last recipe in the book is a wedding cake. And so maybe not everybody is going to build a wedding cake, but they're going to have the skills if they ever want to. And surprisingly enough, there are quite a few people that do end up making a wedding cake. Um, but so it's, you know, it starts with one bowl recipes and it ends in a wedding cake, which is sort of the ultimate project. Well, I think the book is beautifully composed. And one of the things that I really admire about it is a lot of the recipes are for quite classic desserts that mm. are quite familiar cakes entirely and um but i still felt they feel very fresh and they feel very accessible and they feel very like oh i need to do this right now and wow it's really clear so i think you you've really really succeeded in kind of creating something brand new and your own but also like very familiar and motivating which which is a lot harder i think than people realize oh great thank you i really appreciate that and i think um, there are so many um, cakes out there that are, you know, 
centuries old that are still amazing. Um, that the and it, and also it goes back to the technique. Um, you know, I have probably the most pages dedicated to meringue. Now, meringue is um, it can be. Um, a recipe in and of itself. I have, you know, essentially an, a meringue um, frosting, but it also can be an ingredient in a recipe where you're folding it into the cake batter to lighten it up. Um, and so, you know, there's all different types of meringue. There's a French meringue, there's Swiss meringue, there's Italian meringue. Um, and they all have a different property to them and a different technique. I'm, I am equally fascinated by technique as I am by flavor. And so I really wanted to introduce people to all of these different techniques so that if they go to a, a book, uh, you know, a diff, somebody else's book, they're going to be familiar with these terms, even if that person hasn't sort of spelled it out as deeply as I have. Um, but I want to teach people technique because it's so much fun. That's so great. And we were talking about the magic of meringue and how few ingredients, but that what you do with it, right? And so yeah. I, I'm really tempted. I don't know if this will take too long, but or what, probably because I don't practice it often enough, hardly ever, because I'm not a big meringue person. But I can't get it to stick in my head what's the mm. difference between French, Italian, oh. and Swiss. And I think it's not just the difference, but then, like, why does that difference matter? What do you use it for? Is that Yeah, you, okay. Do you have that mem- – like, can you do it rocket quick? Okay, I think so. Let's try it. <laughs> yeah, let's try it. Okay, let's try it. French meringue is just raw egg whites – and sugar. So you whip the egg whites in uh, your mixing bowl and you're just drizzling raw sugar into it. And so you're creating your meringue just out of those two ingredients, no heat to it. And so with a French meringue, you really have to bake it or cook it in some way afterwards to make the egg whites um, safe to eat and to stabilize them. So that's a French meringue. A and, is Swiss that, mer- and that is, hold on. And that yeah. usually is like, if you're just going to eat a meringue as a cookie, if you will. Yes. That's yes. usually so a French you meringue. Will, right. That's right. It's also the meringue that I, uh, the style of meringue that I use for my pavlova, because that too is going to be baked. And so it's, you know, just the raw egg white, it has to be baked in some way. So you wouldn't put this, um, I wouldn't put that on like um, a meringue pie. I know some people do that and then uh, toast it in the oven. But since I use a blowtorch, I don't use a French meringue for that. Uh, A Swiss meringue, which is probably the meringue I use the most often because I just find it's easy, it's stable. It's, um, you know, it's beautiful. It almost never fails me is taking the egg whites and the sugar, whisking them together and then heating that over a double boiler. So just a little bit of steaming water Mm -hmm. under this bowl until the sugar melts. And that is enough heat to cook those egg whites until they're safe. Um, There's still a syrup. They're not actually cooking the egg whites to like scramble them. 
Um, and then you put that on your mixer and you whip it until it's glossy and beautiful. You can whip a Swiss meringue for 10 minutes and it's not going to over whip with the French meringue that we had just talked about. You can over whip it and they can get almost like curdled looking. So you have to be a little bit more delicate in the whipping. So I get it with a Swiss meringue, you're actually mm -hmm. whipping what is already cooked, even yes. though they're liquid still egg white. That's right. That's okay. right. And so, and that meringue, you can eat, you can use that as like a frosting. You don't have to bake it. Um, it's safe to eat as is. Uh, you can also bake it, but you don't have to. Got it. Okay. The third one is an Italian meringue. And this is taking a hot syrup made of sugar and water cooked to a certain temperature using a candy thermometer and then drizzling So you can't that. just guess. It won't work if you don't have it at the right time. Right. You need, I mean, some people know by looking at it how it's boiling and stuff. I would never attempt that. Um, I don't have my candy thermometer in front of me, so I'm not going to name the number. I think I know what it is, but I'm not going to name it right now. Um, but you cook it to a certain temperature. It's in my book, the exact temperature. Um, you cook that syrup and then you add that to whipping egg whites in your bowl. That is the heat that's going to cook the egg whites to a safe point there. It's also um, a very stable meringue. So Swiss meringue and Italian meringue are more stable, meaning they're going to keep their shape and be stronger than a French meringue. Got it. You, say, so, you say on page 41 of your book, you say oh. 230 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, good. Celsius for Italian. So you. then, because that's, I think, also where I get confused, because Italian meringue and Swiss meringue have that kind of cooking aspect to mm -hmm. preparing them. So when when would you use Italian rather than Swiss? Well, those two are really interchangeable. Mm. Um, and it's, it's almost like a preference thing. I prefer Swiss meringue. I've just, that's the one that I used most in when, when I was training as a chef in restaurants. Um, and so I think it's sort of just what I came up with. Um, other people swear by Italian meringue. Um, I do think, cause I have all three, um, well, I have Swiss meringue and Italian meringue buttercreams. Um, the Italian meringue buttercream is just a tiny bit lighter but still very stable. And so it's kind of like, I feel like people just need to try both and decide what their favorite one is. There isn't a right one. There isn't a better one. They're just different. Got it. Okay. Well, I don't want to thank you very much for that. Though. Yes. I, I, I loved it. And I, I hope it sticks in my head. I'm going to try. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's always I, the book. Yeah, exactly. It was very well spelled out and then you can apply it. Um, so I needed to ask you this question because I'm fa I'm fascinated by what your answer is going to be. So, and I know you um, had posted <laughs> about what you were cooking for or cooking for dessert for Father's Day. So, f what do you make for dessert for July Fourth? Oh, oh, interesting. Um, well, okay, so I am incredibly fickle. Like I don't have people are always always ask me what my favorite desserts are and. 
Oh, I get into moods with things. It's also seasonal things. I don't know if you were following me on Instagram when I went through, um, I had all these passion fruits, uh, fresh passion fruit. And so everything I was making was with passion fruit because the season isn't that long. It's like when you're in right now, when we're in like the peak of strawberries, local strawberries. It's like mm, everything mm, is mm. going to have strawberries in it because it doesn't last that long. I mean, you can get strawberries all year round now, but they don't taste really. The same. Um, so for 4th of July, okay, here's the honest truth. I haven't even thought about it yet because I don't know what is going to come in front of me. But the first thing that came to my mind, even though I just put out a cake book, was pie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was such an honest answer. I should have said cake. <laughs> That's all right. I'll ask That's you a different hilarious. one where you can cover cake. So, okay, what co- okay. so, so strawberry pie or you're not sure? <laughs> it's early. Well, I mean, also... Okay, so here's the best one of the best moments of the last year was um, was getting invited by Dory Greenspan to work on um, an article. She does, you know, obviously the New York Times magazine uh, recipe, and she invited me to do it with her. And the reason she invited me is because I'm mad hot in love with Baked Alaska And so we did a Baked Alaska together. And the one that she had been inspired uh, of mine was a red, white, and blue um, Baked Alaska, which she then flopped so that it was the French flag instead of the American flag, (laughs) Um, which as she would do. I want to know on the um, red, white, and blue Baked Alaska. Yes. So you had the American flag, and Dory Greenspan yes. ended up with the French flag. So, But what were the <laughs> elements? What was red, what was white, and what was blue? And then how were they switched around? Okay, it was uh, blueberry ice cream, coconut ice cream, and strawberry ice cream. Um, then layered with a Swiss meringue. Oh, okay. So uh, the meringue wasn't colored. It was the ice creams that were colored. Yes. Okay. Yes. It was the ice cream inside. So when you cut into this baked Alaska, which was which was piled up in a loaf pan. So when you when you sliced it, you had the stripes like the flag. Um, and so I had created that for a Fourth of July um, event originally, and then of course she turned it French. Um, and well, so and I, I should say, if folks want a baked Alaska les- a lesson from you, conveniently, you did one for the Joy of Jubilee with Cherry yes. Bomb, and it's still on their website. So you can watch, get a lesson from Zoe on making baked Alaska, which I would say has a pretty high intimidation factor. And it could not be easier. I mean, it is really, you. There's it's so simple to make, and it really is one of those spectacularly beautiful desserts that everybody thinks is super difficult. And you don't have to tell them how easy it is, but it really is easy. So go watch that video. It really- No, it's um, great. And I loved your tip of how you make the little like spiky hedgehog things with meringue that you just use other meringue to do it. That like- Yes. How, but like someone needs to tell you that. It would never occur to you. You would think that you need some fancy device, but once someone shows you, you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. Of course. Absolutely. It's just your fingers and meringue. So that's all, those are the tools you need. Um, well, you need, 
you know, something to whip the meringue with. But once you've made to meringue, make yes. the spiky, spiky meringue, just your fingertips. Um, so yeah. So something for the 4th of July, I guess where I was going with that is I like to play with the colors. You know, it is in honor of um, the flag. So I do like to try to play with different berries or color, you know, using natural elements to create that feeling. And if you were going to steer listeners, because I, I, I want to give your your beautiful new <laughs> justice, you're going to steer <laughs> listeners to one cake to try as a Fourth of July, I don't know, picnic or backyard gathering event. Is there one that comes to mind that, that you think works well in summer and would? Yes. With, yeah. Oh, yes. I, I came to me immediately is the pavlova roulade. Um, and this is my pavlova recipe, which my pavlova is is special in that it's shaped like a tutu and it's really quite fun. And um, for those who don't know, back to your obsession with meringue, right? The main ingredient course. in pavlova is meringue. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the perfect summer dessert because it's so light. It's just like. You know, you don't want anything too heavy and it's light and cool. And I really think this is a great summer dessert and it's very, very easy. Um, and so you just uh, with the pavlova, you whip up the pavlova, you spread it out onto a sheet, you invert that and then you roll whipped cream or uh, and or lemon curd. And then you could put different colored berries so that you can have that 4th of July festive look to it. Now, how um, do you roll pavlova, which which breaks? I know. I know. It's really so. interesting. So you're baking it at a higher temperature for a much shorter amount of time. So it's, it's souffleing up. So you get that ethereal puff to it, but it's not baking until it's crisp. So it's still a soft uh, cake. And then does it harden um, when it cools? No, no, oh, no, it no. Stays it more stays cake-like. soft. It stays a soft cake. So it's so interesting because it's exactly the same recipe as my pavlova which the pavlova baked as the tutu gets this crispy outer shell. And um, it's just an entirely different texture. And the only difference is in the temperature and how long you bake it. So you can really change the nature of a cake with temperature. So okay. fascinating. I'm, I'm going to hold you to this, and you might okay. have already done it, but will yeah. you do it for July 4th on your feed for us? Yes, 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 I will. I want to see the, the colors that you promised. Okay. <laughs> You're literally the okay. first challenge I've set for anyone on this show. Oh, so, okay, okay. So, done. Uh, excited. I will be tracking it. Me too. Right. I'm excited. After the break, we're going to hear Zoe's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. Are you signed up for the sneak peek of the new movie about Julia's life and legacy? I'm hosting a virtual conversation with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG, about their upcoming full-length Julia documentary. Join me and Julia's great nephew, Alex Prudhomme, 
as we celebrate Julia's birthday with the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. You can participate from wherever you'll be on August 15. To register, go to sbce.events. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? <laughs> From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. Zoe, it seems like you like the clip. What's your Julia <laughs> moment? Oh, I love it. I love it. And I love how absolutely true it is. Like how many times I flipped a tartatan or a flan <laughs> and it just entirely missed the dish. So my Julia moment, like I, I have to say, there's so many of them that um, I'm just going to tell you, I remember. OK, so you have to you have to recall that I grew up on a commune. Which I and so not a television, <laughs> not a television. No, 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 no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing. Um, so TV, absolutely not. So when I was introduced to television, I was probably seven, eight, nine. Um, all of a sudden, um, leave it to beaver. Like who, who grew up like that? You know, I grew up in a teepee, you know? And so we like leave it to beaver and Julia Child, it's like, and she was cooking things. It wasn't granola. It wasn't, you know, this just absolute hippie fare that we would have. It was the most incredible, elegant food. And I, I the thing that I remember most was the a floating island, which was a oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's a meringue. <laughs> oh my god, it went all the way back to that. I can't even believe it. It's like, it's, I had, until I said the word, it hadn't even occurred to me. And then creme anglaise, which is just wait, vanilla. Wait, we should clarify again for those who may not know, right? Baked, uh, floating islands or meringues that float in custard, right? Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a meringue that is poached, um, poached in, I think she was poaching it in milk. Um, and then it floats on a bed of vanilla custard, uh, like a sauce. It's not a thick custard. It's a sauce so that the meringue is actually floating on it. And then she just sat there by herself at the end of the show and ate it all. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, I was just a kid. And I was like, that is the most spectacular thing I have ever seen in my entire life and I would watch her show all the time, all the time. And then um, Baking with Julia was my absolute Bible. It was my introduction to so many techniques, to so many recipes, to so many. It was like it was like the um, Instagram of its day because it introduced me to all of these chefs I never would have known about because she had brought them all together in this one book, in this one series. And it also introduced me to Dory Greenspan, which is, you know, I will be forever uh, grateful for. 
Um, but yeah, so those were really, and then of course there's the blowtorch, but like I said, there's just too many Julia moments to, to well, say I just one. That's a great one. And you stayed perfectly on theme from your self-professed obsession with meringue. <laughs> so there you are. It's, it, you were clearly born with meringue on the mind. Apparently. That is so funny. That even surprised me, I have to say. Love it. And so if you made Floating Islands, given mm-hmm. that you have, and people, if they check your feed, will see how much you love a blowtorch, um, which you also give on the Cherry Bomb uh, demo, a lesson yeah. in blowtorches, would yes. you torch or, or scorch? Because a, 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 I don't think traditionally Floating Islands no. are meant to be bright, angelic, and white. Yes. Would you leave Yes. Do you think I that's think- important? Well, that is, you know, that's such a good question because I do think uh, traditionally that is how it goes, that they are not torched. Um, And that does sort of lend to that ethereal cloud-like look to it. But I always put tradition on its head. So I might just try it and see what it does. I mean, now now that we're having this conversation, I kind of want to do that. And w- let's go back to our rocket quiz that you did. Are you so- going to give me another right. challenge? No, I'm not. I'm just going to gonna ask you a technical question. So, ba- <laughs> so floating islands are they French meringue? Yes, yes, that would be a French meringue that you would poach, and that is how you would cook it. And if you were going to torch it, would you maybe need to change it? Because would French yes. meringue that's baked not torch as well as like Swiss meringue or? And okay. and the thing is about poaching it is that you don't have the same surface. And so uh, toasting it, you it just wouldn't be as pretty. Um, and so I feel like if I was going to do a floating, if I was going to do a floating meringue that I was then going to torch, I would probably switch it to a Swiss or Italian and skip the poaching and just do the torching. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I think really, that's good. I think that's like good re- too for anyone deciding to try it. It's probably safer uh, salmonella wise. Yes, and I think that we are just you know now we're getting really rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great way to end the show on on meringue rebellion. And Zoe, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a pleasure and such an honor. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks everyone for listening. We hope you learned a lot about Meringue and all about what Zoe's up to. If you're one of the very few people not following Zoe yet, it's at Zoe Bakes on Instagram and also on Facebook. The blog that started it all is ZoeBakes.com. Her new cookbook is Zoe Bakes Cakes, everything you need to know to make your favorite layers, bunt, loaves, and more. And it should have said Meringue. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For all the latest on SBC events, follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. And for the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. 
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.